It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Simon Prosser. Simon's um, a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of St Andrews. His main research interests are in the philosophy of mind and in metaphysics. And he's published articles on temporal experience, intentionalism about conscious experience, indexical thoughts, the metaphysics of time and emergent properties. And he's currently finishing off a monograph on the experience of time and change called Experiencing Time. And today, Simon's going to tell us why indexicals are essential. Thanks a lot, Simon. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. So, in the late 1970s, John Perry published a pair of very famous articles on indexicals. One was called Frege on indexicals. The other one was called The Problem of the Essential Indexical. Now, for those of you who don't know, an, an indexical term is a word whose reference varies systematically according to the context. So, examples are I, or here, or now, for example. So when I say the word I, it refers to me. When you say the very same word, it refers to you. Its reference varies in that systematic way. Um, with a number of memorable examples, Perry argued that there was something essential about indexicals. And usually he's understood to have been, have, excuse me, he's usually understood to have been saying that indexicals were essential in order for actions to be performed and that different indexicals had a different particular role in their significance for action. So the best way to illustrate this is with some examples. Perry's most famous example is probably his shopping trolley example. So one day he's in a supermarket, he's wheeling his shopping trolley around, and he notices a trail of sugar on the floor in the supermarket. Obviously somebody's got a bag of sugar in their trolley which is leaking and leaving a trail of sugar. And he thinks that someone is making a mess. And then eventually he's been round and round the same, same aisle a few times when he realises that actually it's his own bag of sugar that's leaking. And then his thought changes and now he thinks, I am making a mess. And as a result of that change in what he's thinking, he now behaves differently. And the thought seems to be that there are some circumstances in which one can be thinking something about a person but it's only when one comes to think about that person as I or me that one then reacts in a certain way. Another example is that of Rudolf Lingens, who is lost in the Stanford Library. And he's reading a book which is actually a complete biography of Rudolf Lingens. It says everything about Rudolf Lingens including exactly which floor of the Sanford Library Lingens is on, on a particular date, um, many other things about him. But Lingens is lost because he doesn't know that he is Rudolf Lingens. He doesn't know something of the form, I am Rudolf Lingens. The third floor of the Stanford Library is here. 11th of May 2015 is now. And it seems that no matter how much knowledge Lingens has of the kind that could be learned just from reading a book, he's not able to act in relation to his environment until he starts to think of his situation using these indexical terms like I and here and now and other related terms like near and far. Around the same time, David Lewis published another very famous article called Attitudes de Dicto and de Se in which he gave a similar sort of example. Lewis imagines that there is a possible world in which there are two gods, that both uh, are embodied, they both live in that world, but they live in different places in the world and they do different things. And the two gods are both propositionally omniscient. They know all true propositions about that world. Or to put it another way, they've narrowed down the possibilities for how the world might be to just one, they know exactly which possible world is the one that they live in. But they don't know who they are or where they are or when they are in that world. Because the only sort of knowledge they have is the sort of knowledge which is not expressible using indexical terms. Consequently, they're not really in a position to do anything. If they want something to happen in that world, it seems that they're not able to act. 
There certainly seems to be something importantly missing that has a very crucial role. And that something seems to be the kind of knowledge that one would express using words like I and here and now. So, although actually recently Perry's been saying that he's been slightly misinterpreted, normally Perry has been interpreted as saying that um, having the kinds of thoughts that we express using indexical terms is essential in order to be able to act. And also that each indexical has a special psychological role. I'll just mention one other Perry example from his 1977 paper. Suppose that I am about to be attacked by a bear. And I think I am about to be attacked by a bear. And you see that I'm about to be attacked by a bear. And you think a thought that would be expressible using the words, he is about to be attacked by a bear. And notice that my word I and your word he both refer to the same person. So we both think about that person, that that person is about to be attacked by a bear. But it seems that there's different behavior is appropriate. For me, the appropriate behavior when I think that I'm about to be attacked by a bear is to roll up in a ball and keep still. For you, the appropriate behavior is to run and get help when you think he is about to be attacked by a bear. So each different indexical term seems to have a special particular significance for action. Very often the claim that indexicals are essential has been understood in one of the following sorts of ways. Either it's understood in terms of there being some special mode of presentation. So maybe when I think of a place as here, I think of it under some special mode of presentation and because of that, uh, my here thoughts have this special psychological role. Or um, sometimes, Essential indexicals have been understood in terms of a special kind of content. So some sort of special day say content, which might be modeled in terms of centered possible worlds, where a centered possible world is just like a possible world, but with a particular person and time marked as the center. And you can capture, or at least as is argued, you can capture the content of some indexical expression uh, in terms of a set of these centered possible worlds. Now, just recently, the claim that indexicals are essential has come under attack. My colleague from St. Andrews, Herman Kaplan, and Josh Deaver have co-authored a book entitled The Inessential Indexical, in which they argue that the whole doctrine of the essential indexical is a myth. There is no special kind of content that would explain essential indexicality, and they think that all of the examples that have been given to illustrate that there's some special role that indexicals have um, they all fail in some way. So, for example, they argue that in Perry's shopping trolley example, all that's happening there is that um, a certain person understood under one mode of presentation is being identified with a person thought of under a different mode of presentation. And this is just an example of the familiar phenomenon of referential opacity, where it can be informative to learn that A is B, even when A and B are names for the same person. One or two other people have also argued that uh, the notion of essential indexicals is a myth. Ruth Millikan argued for this some years ago, and also Ofra Magador has been arguing for it just recently. Now, I'm going to argue today that actually it's not a myth. There is uh, an important notion of the essential indexical. Um, and similarly, there is such a thing as the first-person perspective, and it does have an important role in many philosophical debates, which is something else that Kaplan and Deva deny. But I do agree with Kaplan and Deva on quite a few points. I agree, for example, that the phenomenon that I'm targeting doesn't really have anything to do with indexicals per se. It's not the indexicality of the indexicals that gives them the special role they have. And in fact, I'm gonna be talking about certain mental states, beliefs, uh, states like that. And I don't even think that there is anything importantly indexical about the particular mental states in question. And I'll explain why there's some connection with indexicals as we go on. 
Okay, let me just uh, go through the structure of the talk. Here's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'm going to tell you slightly more precisely what doctrine I want to defend. I'll describe a thing that I'll call the doctrine of the essential indexical. I'll give you a, a rough description of it, then towards the end of the talk I'll give you a more precise version. Then I'm going to describe a thing that I call the connotation principle. And this says that indexical terms connote certain relations between the thinking subject and things in the environment of the thinking subject. Things that I'll call SE relations for short, standing for subject environment relations. Um, so thirdly, uh, I shall argue that in order to act in many, many ways on one's environment, one must be aware of these SE relations. One must be aware of certain relations that one stands in to one's environment, which is another claim that Kaplan and Deva have attacked. Fourthly, however, I shall argue that awareness of those relations isn't yet sufficient to explain anything about indexical, uh, essential indexicals. In fact, merely having an awareness of the fact that a certain person stands in a certain relation to that person's environment won't be enough to enable one to act. One has to know about the SE relations in a certain way, um, and I shall call that way first-person redundant. There is a phenomenon that I shall call first-person redundancy, which I think is really the key to understanding essential indexicality. After that, I'll explain how Indexicals, indexical expressions, are essential just in the sense that they connote these special SE relations that are understood in the subject in a way that's first-person redundant. Finally, if there's time, I want to talk a little bit more about this phenomenon of first-person redundancy because I actually think it may well hold the key to some other philosophical puzzles. And if there's time, I'll say just a little bit about the distinction between knowing how and knowing that, and also about the explanatory gap and the knowledge argument in philosophy of mind. So, first of all, the doctrine of the essential indexical. <clears throat> well, I'm just going to read out the doctrine and then I'll explain what some of these things mean. So the claim that I want to defend is that there is a class of actions, I'll call it C subscript A, such that no action in CA can be performed by an agent who lacks the relevant egocentric mental state, the presence of which is normally indicated by the use of an egocentric indexical. So a number of bits of jargon in there. So first of all, the class of actions CA. Um, this probably includes all the sorts of actions that human beings ever uh, perform. <coughs> It might actually include all possible actions by all possible beings. Um, and I'll say a little bit about whether that's true during the talk. Secondly, by egocentric indexicals, I mean a certain class of indexicals which include here and now and I, which seem to capture the first-person perspective, the perspective of the thinking subject. I certainly don't want to claim that all indexical terms have this essential role for action, and I very much doubt that anybody ever wanted to claim that. For example, uh, consider the indexical term here subscript HC, which refers to the current location of Hermann Kaplan, wherever he may be at the moment. Um, that doesn't seem to be uh, an indexical term that has any special role in my actions, thoughts that I express using that made-up indexical, except under some very strange circumstances, wouldn't normally be essential for action. So attention's limited here to this class of egocentric indexicals. Uh, it'll become clearer as I go on exactly what delimits that class. Finally, an egocentric mental state is a certain kind of mental state whose content is a subject-environment relation. Uh, and in fact, it's going to turn out to be um, a mental state that consists in an awareness of or representation of an SE relation in a way that's first-person redundant. That's what I'll be arguing for. 
Okay, so that's what I'm setting out to defend. Next, I want to describe this thing called the connotation principle. So again, I shall read this out and then I'll explain some of the bits of jargon that it contains. So the connotation principle says that when a subject S, just a, a person, when a subject S uses an egocentric indexical term lambda in referring to an object O, S's use of lambda indicates that S believes that S stands in an SE relation to O. Different indexicals connote different SE relations. So, as I said previously, an SE relation is a subject-environment relation. I'm going to give some examples of these so it'll become clearer what sort of thing I have in mind. One thing that's important to notice is that it's the thinking subject that is one of the relata of the SE relation. Indexicals are often thought to be associated with relations that hold between the token uttered indexical term and something else. So people say that an uttered token of here refers to the place in which that token is uttered. But I think that what's really important about indexicals is not those relations, but the relation between the thinking subject and whatever the thinking subject is thinking about. Also, you should notice that the connotation principle doesn't just apply to expressed thoughts. It applies to any thought that could be expressed using an indexical term. So even when somebody's just walking around, not talking to anybody, but they're thinking about various things and they're acting on their environment, they're thinking thoughts that could be expressed using indexical terms. And everything I say applies in those cases too. So I'm not going to be making claims really about indexical language. I'm making claims about the sorts of thoughts, the sorts of mental states that we express using indexicals. Okay, well, maybe it'll help get a little bit clearer what I'm saying if I give some particular examples. So, some examples from the spatial case. Suppose that S believes that it is F here, like it is warm here, something like that, about some location L. Well, one thing that S believes is that that location L has the property F. But I don't think that that's all that the subject believes. I think that S also believes something that I'll express in the words that L is hereabouts. Where a place is hereabouts, if and only if, it is where S is located. Notice that although hereabouts captures a relation between a place and the thinking subject, we can often use monadic predicates to talk about these sorts of relations. So hereabouts is supposed to be in the same linguistic category as words like near, far, to the left, and so on. I can just say something is nearby, and, well, that's true if and only if it's near to me, but uh, there's a, a monadic term that I can use to capture that. Arguably, the word there in itself doesn't connote any particular SE relations, but when I think about some place as there, very often I am nevertheless aware of some relation that I stand into that place. So I very often am, once again, aware, in, aware of an SE relation. Similarly, for the temporal case, if S believes that it is F now, about some time T, then, of course, S believes of T that T is F, but S also believes that T is present. Presumably nobody could say it is F now, but deny that the time that they were talking about was present. Now, it's not clear to what extent the analogy, that there's going to be an analogy between spatial and temporal terms here. I think there is, but it does depend on what you think about the metaphysics of time. That's because there is a debate among philosophers of time about whether or not there is a real property of presentness. Some people think that pastness, presentness, and futurity are simply properties of times. I don't agree with that. I have a view of time called the B-theory of time. 
according to which words like past and future are really just like left and right. They pick out a relation between a person and a time. But that can't be quite right because a person exists at many different times. It's not entirely clear what the relation in question would be uh, in the same way it is in, in the case of here. Here is presumably the place where I am now. But now is not the time at which I am here because I may be here at many other times as well. So I lean towards a theory that says that these words like present and past and future pick out relations between a temporal stage of a person and a time. There's a particular temporal stage of me that's thinking it is F now, and I'm also aware that this particular temporal stage of me is simultaneous with the particular time that I'm thinking about and referring to as now. If I'm wrong about this, if the alternative, the A theory of time is true, according to which pastness, presentness, and futurity are real properties of times, then maybe temporal indexicals are going to need a special kind of treatment. Um, I think I'm going to leave it to the atheists to explain to us exactly how that works. I'm very skeptical about whether they'll do it. Now, I also think that the same sort of account works for uh, personal indexicals such as I. So I'll just explain how this should work by analogy with the here case, and then I'll say a little bit more to explain what kind of relation I think is in question. So the claim will be, if S believes that I am, S, uh, I am F, where the word I refers to S, then S also believes that S is iota. And what it means to say that S believes is I, iota is the following. S's belief that S is iota is true if and only if S stands in what I shall call the iota relation to S. So it's a relation that S stands in to S. Now your first thought might be, well, the relation that S stands in to S is just identity. S is the very same person as S. But we stand in other relations to ourselves, not just identity. And I think that the iota relation is a different relation than identity. So here's an example that's intended to illustrate that. Consider two people, I'll call them Smith and Jones, and they're sat facing one another, and they both have the desire to raise Smith's arm. So there they are. Now we can suppose that they both have the ability to raise Smith's arm, but they can do it in different ways. And they can do it in different ways because of the different relations in which they stand to Smith. So, for example, Smith stands in a relation to Smith such that Smith can raise Smith's arm at will. And Jones doesn't stand in that relation to Smith. If Jones wants to raise Smith's arm, Jones is going to have to take advantage of some other relation that Jones stands in to Smith such as the fact that Jones is sat opposite Smith and can reach Smith's arm and lift it up. Also, Smith receives information from Smith's body in ways that are not available to Jones. When Smith's stomach is empty, Smith can just feel that that's the case. Jones doesn't stand in that relation to Jones. Uh, sorry, Jones doesn't stand in that relation to Smith. So I'm not going to try to give a very detailed account of what all these relations consist in, but I just want to gather them all together and call this thing the iota relation. This is the relation that Smith stands in to Smith that, among other things, makes it possible for Smith to raise Smith's arm. And Jones doesn't stand in that same relation to Smith. For those of you familiar with the notion, I think we can usefully think about the iota relation as a kind of affordance relation. The notion of an affordance is due to the psychologist J.J. Gibson, and affordances are relations between, well, as Gibson would put it, a perceiving subject and that perceiving subject's environment that determine the possibilities for interaction between the subject and the environment. 
So maybe being within reach would be an example of an affordance. It has significance for my actions if something is within reach. So I want to say that the iota relation probably could be thought of as a kind of affordance relation. And actually, although I've been suggesting that the SE relations associated with spatial and temporal uh, indexicals are spatial and temporal relations, I think actually it's quite plausible in reality that they're really affordance relations. But it won't matter for today if we just think of them as spatial or temporal relations. Now, I've been saying that someone who expresses their thought using a certain indexical term believes themselves to stand in a certain SE relation. And there may be some of you who think that the notion of belief is a bit too strong. That'll depend on how, how demanding your notion of belief is. So certainly in some of the sorts of cases that I have in mind, Somebody is aware of standing in an SE relation, perhaps just because they perceive their environment in a certain way. At any rate, if you have a more demanding notion of belief, if you think that beliefs are relations to thoughts made up of concepts, for again, modes of presentation, something like that, and if you think that's not the case here, it's not really going to make a great deal of difference to the argument. We could instead just say, as I sometimes have been, that in the case where S expresses a thought using an indexical term, S is aware of standing in a certain SE relation. You can understand the word awareness in a very liberal sense, such that all sorts of different kinds of states would count. I'm also sometimes going to assume that the relevant mental states have representational contents, and I shall talk about them representing SE relations. But if you're one of those people who doesn't think that perceptual states have representational contents, I don't think it's going to matter a great deal for what I really want to say here. You can just again think of them, think of the perceptual, perceptual states in terms of awareness of certain SE relations. Okay, so that was the connotation principle. So next I'm going to argue that in order to act, one must be aware of these SE relations. <coughs> so I think this is not at all implausible, certainly not at all implausible in the spatial case. So when one uses one's body to act on one's environment, one very often has to be aware of the way in which one's body is related to that environment. If I want to reach out and touch this microphone, for example, I need to be aware of the relation I stand into the microphone. I need to know that it's in front of me and at a certain distance from me. If I had absolutely no idea of where the microphone was in relation to me, it would be very difficult for me to reach out and touch it. So very often using one's body to act on one's environment requires an awareness of SE relations. Now, the following part of the talk is partly a response to something that Kaplan and Deva argue in their book, um, because they argue against this claim that I've just made. What they argue is that sometimes actions can be explained without making reference to any such states. In fact, they, they argue that actions can often be explained without making reference to any sort of indexical state. But I think it's very important to realize that action explanations can be more or less fine-grained. So for example, I came to London to give a talk to the Aristotelian Society. There's an action, and that can be explained by the fact that I believed that I'd been invited to give a talk, and I wanted to give the talk. And so I traveled from London to St. Andrews in order to give the talk. And that seems like a perfectly, perfectly good explanation of something that I did. But of course, it leaves out an enormous amount of fine-grained detail about all the things that happened to me on my journey here. So one can satisfyingly explain actions in many cases without making reference to indexical terms or without using indexical terms. That in no way shows that uh, 
actions do not require the sort of mental states expressible by indexical terms. However, I must concede that not every detail of one's bodily movement can be plausibly explained in terms of what one believes. If I were to reach out and grab hold of the microphone, probably the fine-grained details of the way that I would shape my hand as I reached out to touch it would not be very happily explained in terms of things that I believed. Nevertheless, actions are things that one intends to do. And I do think that my reaching out towards the microphone and touching it is something I intended to do, and that is going to need to be explained in terms of my awareness of certain relations I stood in to the microphone. I'm also aware that there is some, um, some question about the extent to which conscious perceptual states guide actions. Many of you will be familiar with the, the two streams hypothesis due to Melvin Goodale and Andrew Milner, according to which visual information is processed in two different streams, the dorsal and the ventral stream, and one gives rise to conscious experience and another one gives rise or seems to control actions. And this has been illustrated with some examples in which um, due to a certain kind of brain injury, uh, a certain patient couldn't tell um, from looking what orientation a letterbox was in, but was nevertheless able to post a letter in the right orientation through the letterbox, which suggests that the orientation of her hand as she reached out to post the letter was not being controlled by her conscious experience, but must instead have been being controlled by information that she was not really aware of in her dorsal stream. Nevertheless, it seems to me that um, that only shows that somebody in that situation does not intend to shape their hand in a particular way to post the letter. She was nevertheless aware of roughly where the letterbox was in relation to her. She was aware of whether it was to the left, to the right, in front or behind. She was aware of whether it was near or far. If one had absolutely no sense at all of where the letterbox was anywhere in the universe, I'm not sure that one would be in a position to intend to post a letter through it. So I do claim that in normal cases, intending to perform an action in relation to one's environment does require being aware of one's relations to that environment. Still, a certain sort of worry might persist if I want to claim that indexicals are essential for all possible actions by all possible beings, well, we have to consider then whether or not there could in fact be some godlike being who doesn't act in quite the same way that human beings do. Could there, for example, be a godlike being who is able to act on the world just by specifying the state of affairs that the god wanted to obtain, and then, by magic, that state of affairs comes about? It certainly might seem that a godlike creature like that wouldn't, inquire, wouldn't require indexical representations of the world in order to act on it. You can imagine them equipped with a name for every object in the world, uh, a term for every property, and all they have to do is just specify the state of the world at some point in the future, uh, and then, lo and behold, it comes about. So there does seem to be a worry that there is at least some possible creature that could act without being aware of SE relations. Now, if that's true, then I'm simply going to restrict my claims to the class of actions that human beings can perform, because human beings are not godlike in that sense. We don't have a capacity to just intend some state of affairs to come about, and lo and behold, our bodies make it come about. But I am actually a little bit sceptical about this very notion of godlike action. You might think that there are a number of reasons to be worried about it, but apart from anything else, in order to perform this kind of godlike action, it does seem that this godlike creature would have to at least specify the state of affairs that it wanted to obtain. And specifying itself is a kind of action. 
So it seems to me that performing that kind of action may well nevertheless require some kind of SE relation. Probably not a relation to things external to oneself, but perhaps a, a relation to oneself which involves an awareness of the kinds of capacities to act that one has. This may mean, though, that I should restrict the, the class CA of actions for which indexicals are essential to what are sometimes called the basic actions, actions which are performed without thereby performing some other action. Okay, so that's an argument that in order to act on one's environment, one must be aware of certain relations that one stands in to one's environment. Now, one thing to notice is that so far, I haven't really explained anything about why indexical should be essential for action. Think back to Lewis's example of the two gods who know every true proposition about the world they live in, but don't know any propositions in indexical form. And it does seem that those gods would still be helpless to act on one's environment unless they knew things like, I am that god, the mountain is over here, and so on. Now, because Lewis's two gods know everything, every true proposition about their world, then if there is some being in that world, S, who stands in some relation to some entity in that being's environment, then the two gods will know that. They will know that S stands in some relation R to some object O for any such relations. And yet, they are still just as helpless to act. So merely being aware of these relations to one's environment doesn't yet explain uh, how one can act, and it doesn't tell us anything about essential indexicals. So that's what I'm going to argue for now. I'm going to argue for it um, by first explaining a notion that I call first-person redundancy. And then in the next section of the talk, I'll explain how we can construct a simple regress argument that shows that we must have first-person redundant mental representations. So to illustrate the notion of first-person redundancy, just imagine a very simple one-dimensional world. And it contains um, some objects, which we call A and B, and a thinking subject S, positioned along the line that their world consists in. Now, if you are one of the relata in a relation, then sometimes there's a sort of epistemological shortcut that you can take in judging that you stand in that relation to things. Sometimes the fact that you are one of the relata of the relation means that whereas everybody else would need two different parameters to judge that you stood in that relation to something else, you can make that same judgment using only one parameter. So, for example, this being S can represent the locations of A and B relative to S just using a simple parameter. A could be represented as minus 2, B could be represented as plus 1. And in order to judge that S stands in that relation to A or that other relation to B, S needs only detect one parameter in order to make that judgment. And similarly, in order to act on A and B, S needs only a single parameter. Just to make that clear, we can imagine that S detects the distance of A and B using something like radar. S just sends out a radio signal, measures how long it takes for the signal to come back, and that one parameter tells S how far away the object is. Whereas if anybody else wanted to know how far apart these two objects are, they'd need to know the location of the one, and they'd need to know the location of the other, uh, and then do the arithmetic to find out how far apart they were. So there's a special kind of epistemological shortcut that S is in a position to take. So S doesn't necessarily need representations like A is minus two units from me, or B is plus one unit from me it would be sufficient for S's purpose to just have monadic representations that represent A as being minus two units away and B as being plus one units away. So in fact, 
having an explicit representation of S would be redundant from S's point of view in this situation. There's just no need to have that additional element of representation. Similarly, we can think about how S interacts with the environment. So suppose S eats objects like A and B. And suppose that to catch those objects, S extends S's tongue just the right distance in order to catch them. Well, again, that can just be uh, controlled by a single parameter. S just has to detect the distance away of the object and then feed in a single parameter to determine how far out the tongue has to stick in order to just catch that particular object. And even if S did possess an explicit representation of S, that would simply be redundant. It wouldn't be needed in order to perform these sorts of actions on S's environment. So that's a case of what I'm calling first-person redundancy. So first-person redundancy is something that occurs when the thinking subject is responsive to only one parameter, or need be only responsive to one parameter, in dealing, what is dealing with what is actually a two-place subject-environment relation. Or more generally, the subject needs only n minus one parameters in dealing with an n-place relation. And when a mental representation of an SE relation is first-person redundant, it really doesn't matter whether the subject's explicitly represented or not. So a more familiar example is that one can judge that an object is nearby or to the left without needing to first note one's own position and then compare one's own position with the position of that object. I can tell how far away Matt is without needing to see where my own body is and then compare the location of my body with Matt's. I can just look at Matt and I can immediately detect how far away Matt is. And even if, in fact, I catch a bit of my body in my peripheral vision, I don't need to see my body in order to make that judgment about how far away Matt is. So my visual experience of my body in making that judgment is simply redundant. The same applies to many other sorts of judgments that we make. So I think that first-person redundancy is a property of a great many mental representations of these subject-environment relations. The same is true for temporal cases, for example, where when you remember something, you simply have a sense of how long ago it was, and you're able to judge the temporal relation that the current temporal stage of you stands into that remembered event without needing to make a comparison. Now, I think I should digress just a little bit here to talk about the notion of unarticulated constituents and how that stands in relation to the claims about first-person redundancy. Because a number of people have claimed that, in experience, one does not necessarily have any representation of oneself. So this is actually another John Perry notion. Perry introduced the notion of unarticulated constituents in an article called Thought Without Representation in 1986. And the example he gave was, he said, imagine a place called Zealand, where the people who live in Zealand never move around. They always stay in exactly one place. So they have absolutely no use for words like here. So they simply say, it is raining. Or maybe they say, it's raining now. But when they say it is raining, what they say is true if and only if it's raining at location L at time T. Location L being Zealand, the place where they are. So in this linguistic utterance, it is raining, the place L and also the time T are unarticulated constituents. They're constituents of the truth condition of what's uttered, but they're not there in what is said. Now, a number of people have thought that something a bit like this is going on in experience, 
Perry himself and subsequently John Campbell and also Sidney Shoemaker have claimed at various times that um, sometimes when an object appears to be nearby, for example, um, the content of one's experience is just the monadic notion nearby rather than being the fully articulated notion near to me. So it's natural to wonder what the relation of, of that idea is to this notion of first-person redundancy. They're clearly similar notions. However, the notion of an art unarticulated constituent can be made clear enough for language, but it's less clear exactly how we should apply it to the content of experience. Okay, I'm just going to show you a couple of very simple diagrams just to, to get the idea across, uh, and then I'll say something more detailed. So here's a picture of S in front of a tree. And imagine that you're simply seeing this scene. So the visual experience you have right now puts you in a position to judge that S is in front of a tree. And that would be true even if it turned out unexpectedly that you are S and you're just seeing yourself in a mirror or there's some sort of refraction going on. But now consider the visual experience when you have, you have when, when looking at this. Well, you might still be that same subject in front of a tree. It seems that the experience you're having puts you in a position to judge that there's a tree in front. And of course you may then come to believe that there's a tree in front of you. But the thought would be that perhaps the content of the experience is just that there's a tree in front. But now here's a, a problem about how to make this claim for experience. For linguistic utterances, there's a simple procedure to detect unarticulated constituents. You just look at the syntactic structure of the utterance and you look at the number of argument places and then you compare that with the number of argument places in the truth condition. And if there are more argument places in the truth condition than there are in the syntax of the uttered sentence, then you've got some unarticulated constituents. That's fine for language, but experience on the face of it doesn't seem to have a syntax. And so it's rather hard to make sense of the notion of experience having a, a number of argument places. Well, one thought might be that it's the phenomenology that, that settles what's an articulated constituent of the experience. Maybe whenever you can't literally see yourself, you are only an unarticulated constituent of your visual representations of relations to things that you can see. But there are some worries about that sort of claim, because sometimes there are things which you might think are really there in the content, but which lack a phenomenology. What I have in mind is cases of what's sometimes called amodal completion. So the classic example of this is seeing a cat behind railings where parts of the cat are occluded by the railings. And so strictly speaking, all that's visible to you are certain bits of the cat. And yet there certainly seems to be a strong sense in which your visual experience represents the whole cat. This whole cat seems to be visually present to you. And so somebody might claim that even when you can't literally see yourself, nevertheless you are visually present in the same way as the occluded parts of the cat. So it's not entirely clear whether phenomenology would settle the question of whether the thinking subject is a part of the, the explicit content of the experience. Another way to go would just be to appeal to first-person redundancy. It does seem to be true that in order to judge that some n-place predicate applies, one generally needs n parameters. So if you want to judge that a is taller than b, you need to know the height of a and the height of b. If you want to know, that, if you want to know whether the height of a is in between the height of b and the height of c, the three-place predicate, you need to know the height of all three of them. If you just want to know whether A is tall, you just need the height of A. 
So one thought might be, well, since in cases of first-person redundancy, you can judge that an SE relation obtains using only one parameter, that's a reason to think that you've got the, the experiential, experiential equivalent of a one-place predicate, and therefore the, the experiencing subject is an unarticulated constituent. Now, maybe that's the way to go, but that does seem as though it simply makes the notion of first-person redundancy pretty much equivalent to the notion of the unarticulated subject. And I want to resist that because the notion of unarticulated constituents, on the face of it, seems to be a, a semantic issue. It seems to be a semantic matter whether there are unarticulated semantic constituents. Whereas the property of first-person redundancy is an epistemic property. If my mental representation is first-person redundant, that means I stand in a certain epistemic relation to that, the obtaining of that SE relation. <coughs> At any rate, it's this epistemic notion of first-person redundancy that I think we need. Also, the fact that first-person redundancy is an epistemic notion makes it clear that uh, arguments that are based around first-person redundancy aren't appealing to any special kind of semantic content to make the argument. And that's important because I do think that Kaplan and Deva have got fairly strong arguments that special kinds of semantic content can't account for essential indexicals. Okay, well, so far, I've been doing really a lot of setting up. But now, uh, we do actually get to the argument itself. So I'll just introduce a little bit of uh, formalism just to make it easier to state the thing. So suppose that S stands in some SE relation R1 to some object O. And O could be a physical object, or it could be a place, or a time, or a person. I'm using the word object in a very general sense. And let's suppose that S wishes to perform an action on O that depends on standing in this relation. Well, if S's awareness of this relation R1 is non-redundant, then I'll write it in this way as R1 brackets SO. That just means S stands in relation R1 to O. On the other hand, if S's awareness of that relation is first-person redundant, I'll write it in the same way, except that I'll put curly brackets around the S to mark the fact that S is, is redundant in the representation. So now here comes the argument for the claim that uh, we could not act unless we had first-person redundant representations of SE relations. So I claim that in the normal case, if S acts on O, then S is in the first-person redundant representational state, uh, according to which S stands in R1 to O. But let's suppose that that were not the case, and that instead S possessed only the non-redundant representational state, uh, written R1 brackets S O. Well, if that's the only kind of representational state that S had, then as far as representations are concerned, S would be in just the same state as someone else who had a mental representation that S stands in that relation to O and wanted S to act on O. If you had a representation of somebody else and you wanted them to act on O, then in order to get them to act on O, you'd normally need to be aware of some relation that you stood in to that person in order to be able to get them to act on O. And that's still going to be the case, even if, in fact, S is you. So if, in fact, you are S, then in order to use your non-redundant representation that S stands in R1 to O to get S to act on O, you would need to be aware of standing in some relation to the person who is in fact yourself, <coughs> such as to be able to get yourself to act in the appropriate way. 
So that relation would be the kind of relation that I've been calling an iota relation, one of these relations that one stands in to oneself. Of course, it would be very awkward to act in this way. Normally, if I want to reach out and touch the microphone, my attention's really just on the microphone. I don't make myself reach out and touch the microphone. I just do it. But in that case, if S needs to have one of these, uh, if S needs to be aware of standing in this iota relation to S, then S must have some mental state that represents that that is the case. And that mental state is either first person redundant or it's not. But now, of course, I'm just going to repeat the argument. If this representation of S's relation R2, which is a different relation to S, if that's non-redundant, then S is in just the same epistemic position as anybody else who wanted to make S act on S, and would therefore need a further representation of a further relation that S stands into S. And of course, that relation, uh, that representation would either be first person redundant or not, and so you can see that we're off on a, an infinite regress here. And the only way to stop that regress is for there to be a mental representation of an SE relation that is first-person redundant. So that's an argument that shows that in order to act on our environment, we must have mental representations of SE relations which are first-person redundant. This might be a bit unnecessary, but I've also drawn a diagram to illustrate the regress. Uh, the arrows in this diagram point from the agent of the action to the object of the action. So in the normal case, um, I would think that um, S only has the, the first level representation, the first person redundant representation that S stands in this relation R1 to O. But the diagram illustrates an example of S acting on S to make S act on S to make S act on O, which presumably is not something that ever normally happens. Presumably, in the normal case, it just stops at the first stage. <clears throat> okay. We are most of the way there. Now let me just spell out what I've concluded by putting all these different claims together. So put together, this all suggests the following picture. Firstly, from the uh, connotation principle that there's a class of indexicals, which I've called the egocentric indexicals, that connote egocentric mental states, where those are representations of SE relations. Um, and in order for action to be possible, at least non-godlike action, then the subject must possess an egocentric mental state that is first-person redundant. And follows from that that the mental representations whose presence is indicated by the use of indexical terms are essential for action. And so we have a slightly modified doctrine of the essential indexical, which says there's a class of actions CA such that no action in CA can be performed by an agent who lacks a first-person redundant mental state of the kind normally indicated by the use of an egocentric indexical. Well, that's my argument defending essential indexicality. Just for five minutes, I will just advertise some other uses that I think that the notion of first-person redundancy can be put to. This is going to be very, very brief, um, but I'm planning to write about all this in some detail fairly soon. So I think that first-person redundancy is a way of capturing the first-person perspective. Let's say that somebody who has a first-person redundant representation of an SE relation has a first-person perspective on that relation. And let's say that all other kinds of representations, all non-redundant ones, are third-person representations. They're third-person representations because one can be in that sort of epistemic relation to the obtaining of that state of affairs. Um, sorry, everybody can be in that same relation to it. It's the kind of 
the kind of mental state that other people can be in. So we have here a way of distinguishing a first-person perspective from a third-person perspective. Admittedly, the first-person perspective is only a perspective on relations that one stands into the world, but nevertheless, it's a clear distinction. And it's a clear distinction that trades on the fact that one is actually embedded in the world. One is a part of the world that one is thinking about. Well, I think there are three different puzzles, very important and interesting philosophical puzzles that all have a similar structure. They all have the structure such that no matter how much third-person learning one has, no matter how much one learns by reading a book, for example, the sort of book that other people could equally understand, something is missing. So Lewis's two gods are in this situation. They have got all the sort of information about the world that could possibly be obtained by reading a book, and yet there's still something missing. And what I've claimed is what they're missing, what they need in order to be able to act, is a first-person redundant representation of one of those SE relations, which they already knew about in ways that were non-redundant. But here are a couple of other puzzles that have the same structure. There's the puzzle about the relation between knowing how and knowing that. There's a big debate going on at the moment about whether knowing how is a variety of knowing that. By knowing that, what people mean is knowledge of propositions, knowing that such and such is the case. And the sort of argument that suggests that knowing how is something different from knowing that is the sort of argument that says, I can read a book about how to swim um, and let that book say anything at all. It doesn't follow that after reading that book, I can then swim. I don't know how to swim just by virtue of reading that book. Likewise for playing the piano and many other things that one might learn how to do. It seems as though with those things one requires experience to learn how to do them. Now, Jason Stanley and Tim Williamson have defended a view according to which knowing how is in fact a kind of knowing that, but it involves knowing the same facts under what they call a practical mode of presentation. Unfortunately, they don't tell us very much about what exactly they mean by a practical mode of presentation, and a lot of their opponents have been complaining about this. But I want to suggest that actually the, the kind of intellectualist view that Stanley and Williamson defend can be better defended by appeal to the notion of first-person redundancy. Think again about Lewis's two gods who have all the complete book knowledge. Suppose what they want to do is turn to face the sunset. Well, they can't do that because they don't know how to do that. In order to know how to do that, they would have to acquire a first-person redundant representation of their relations to the world that would enable them to know in the relevant sense what their orientation was in the world. And then they would know how to turn to face the sunset. Secondly, and very, very briefly again, there's the explanatory gap, huge and important thing. So this is illustrated by Frank Jackson's knowledge argument in which Mary, the brilliant colour scientist, knows all the facts about the physical world of the kind that can be learned by reading a book. She knows absolutely all of those physical facts about the world, but she's never seen anything red. She's never experienced colour before. And the argument goes, the first time Mary sees something red, she learns something new. And Jackson used that to argue that there were facts that were not facts about the physical world. Just suppose for a moment, though, and this is a, a big supposition that I've been starting to defend in some other work, but uh, you'll just have to consider it as a hypothesis for the moment, Suppose that all of our conscious experiences are representations of relations that we stand in to our environment. That might be fairly plausible in the spatial case, but I want to make that claim even about colour experience, for example. That when you have an experience as of something red, that experience represents that you stand in a certain relation to the object that appears red. 
And let's suppose also that these SE relations that are represented by conscious experiences are first-person redundant. That is to say, the conscious experience of them is a first-person redundant mental state. Well, then we'd have a very nice explanation for why Mary doesn't know what it's like to experience red. Because, arguably, knowing what it's like to experience red means either currently experiencing red or at least being able to simulate the experience of seeing something red. In that case, in order, if my hypothesis is correct, in order to know what it's like to experience something red, one would have to either be in or simulate a first-person redundant representation of a certain relation to one's environment. And there's no reason at all to think that Mary's book knowledge would put her in a position to be able to simulate that first-person redundant mental state. When she gets all of this perfect physical knowledge from her books, she knows about exactly the relation that she stands in to a red object, but she doesn't know about it in a way that's first-person redundant. She knows about it from the third-person point of view. And there doesn't seem to be any reason to think that one should be able to switch from that third-person representation to the first-person first-person redundant representation. They are, after all, quite different epistemic relations to the obtaining of that SE relation. So I think that there are the materials here for an explanation uh, of both of these puzzles, at least insofar as you believe me about the contents of conscious experience. Okay, and with that, I will now stop. <laughs>